This episode of the Coin World Podcast is sponsored by Amos Advantage. Looking to see your collection in greater detail? Check out the wide selection of Carson magnifying products and microscopes available at amosadvantage.com. Count on Carson to bring you truly innovative, high-quality optics at extraordinary value. And count on Amos Advantage for all your coin collecting supply needs. Visit amosadvantage.com to explore our inventory. Would you like to sponsor the Coin World Podcast? If so, contact your Coin World sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B-H-E-R-T-E-L at AmosMedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the Coin World Podcast. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. As I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. I'm Larry Jewett. And I'm Jeff Stark. Last week, we titled the episode Mistakes Happen and We Have Proof. And boy, do we have proof because not only did we talk about errors, I made a colossal one. And um, I have to get that out of the way right away, even um, maybe before we do the shameless plug for AmosAdvantage.com. You know, I said something about Charles Dickens being the master of the mint. And in my mind, it sounded right. Uh, and somebody reached out to me and was like, oh, I, I didn't know that at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? It was Sir Isaac Newton. And then I went back and listened to the show. And sure enough, I said Charles Dickens, uh, based on something you prompted with, Larry. But I totally meant Sir Isaac Newton was a master of the mint. Charles Dickens was not. I don't know. Mint might have been the flavor of his uh, ice cream, maybe. I don't know. So I don't know how I came to that, but um, please don't tell everybody you heard this amazing fact on the Coin World podcast because it's not true. It is fake news, definitely fake news, and uh, uh, totally mea culpa for that. But, uh, you know, if you make an error, you own up to it, and I'm certainly owning up to it now. Well, I'm telling you that uh, this news that you've just given me right here is quite the relief. I was so afraid, so afraid that when you were talking about mistakes, you were going to go back in time now that I'm still on probation from the uh, Chris's departure to be in this podcast. I was afraid that you were going to say the mistake you made was allowing me to be a part of this podcast. And I was, uh, you know, I could understand why you might think that way, but I'm glad that you don't. So I'm glad I'm not the mistake. Yeah, yeah, it's like I said, I'm on probation here. So we spend some time and some effort getting this podcast together for the benefit of our listeners. And we occasionally will make a misstep. But one thing's for sure, if you want to make sure you do the right thing, you're going to be doing your shopping at Amos Advantage like we do, because we've gotten a few of the products and had great satisfaction with them and continue to look at it. I looked at it earlier today and, and Best Book's still there and a few other of the things that uh, you know we really enjoy having in our collection and helping us with our collective needs all can be found right there at Amos Advantage. Yeah, and uh, you know, for your podcast needs, we're here to provide entertainment and news every week. I think we do a decent job of that. And uh, the big news right now, we have to acknowledge, we're going to touch more on it next time is the fact that the 
U.S. Mint has paused the pre-sale for the different Privy Mark Morgan and Peace Dollar commemoratives. That is a big deal, and we're hoping that the announcement means that there's some serious changes to the sales format and and the process for that. Uh, I know I uh, and many others were shut out last week when we tried to get our O and Carson City, New Orleans and Carson City, privy marked pieces. The Mint website continues to be under assault, and there's rabid demand both from the serious collector, the casual flipper, and everything in between. And uh, we're, we're looking to hopefully have some positive news on that front in the coming weeks. But that's a big thing, and um, it just broke at the end of last week. So you might know about it by now, but hopefully we're, you know, for those who don't, you're hearing it here first. So speaking of news, I, I want to go back and, and look what happened back in the past, and we're going to June 4 of 1969, uh, hop into the magical time machine, the DeLorean, if you will. Uh, What happened then? Well, that was when the end of production, uh, when production ceased of the Series 1963B dollar Federal Reserve notes. Now, what makes these notes important or notable? pun intended, uh, is the fact they have the facsimile signature of Treasury Secretary Joseph W. Barr. Uh, these are known as bar notes. And bar none, you can find them in uncirculated condition for a few bucks because so many people saved them because the Treasury Secretary had a very short window that he served and people thought these notes would become valuable. I myself chanced upon a dozen or so a few years ago that I bought at face value. And, you know, I think the story behind it is what makes it neat. You can say, look, you know, this is, it says 1963 on it, but that's not when the note was issued. You can tell when the note roughly was issued because of the treasury secretary and the other signature and all that information on the note. And, you know, it's a, a an affordable story piece, it's a good thing, you know, to hand somebody and and say, you know, use it as a conversation starter. So that to me was probably the most, uh, one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting thing that happened this week in numismatic history, uh, because you will will encounter invariably uh, a bar note or a dozen, like I had, I did in your numismatic journey. And, um, you know, they're not, worth a lot, but what a, you know, a neat story. And it's something everybody, every collector of American paper money should have a bar note just because of that. You know, it's like tulip mania or, you know, some of the other trends or fads. It speaks to how the hobby was really transcending the hobby. You know, the, the coin collecting and paper money collecting, this reached the general public at the time. And because of that, the, these notes can be found readily today for a very, very cheap price. I take offense to the it's not worth a lot comment because it is actually it's worth something, especially when you consider the provenance about it and everything about that. I mean, maybe it's not worth a lot in terms of an investment value or anything like that. 
But if you're interested in uh, the idea that something has some kind of a story behind it, as there's a lot of storytelling being done by coins and currency, and I get a chance to tell those stories to some of the folks every now and again. So it's just the idea that that has, and, and you've taught me something here today, and that's worth it right there to get a little bit of knowledge gained from this. Now, we've got our guest, Bob Evans, coming up here in just a matter of moments. But one of the ways I learn a lot is, too, when I'm uh, faced with these trivia questions that you toss out at me every now and again. And I think we had one uh, last week, and I feel like I got a decent shot at this one. Do you remember what it yeah, was? Yeah, so, you know, because we had Joe Cronin on... I wanted to discuss a particular type of uh, error, which is a, a planchet error, curved clip. I had referenced a specific man the week prior, Becker the counterfeiter, because of counterfeits that are known as Becker forgeries or Becker counterfeits. So in that same vein, I wanted to talk about a type of error that has the name of somebody and so I asked, what is the sort of scientific principle, if you will, called that is one way that you can determine whether your curved clip planchet error is authentic? It's something, I would say it's a intermediate level at the most, maybe, maybe beginner. So do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. But before I give you my answer here, I want to ask, I'm going to see if we can get a hold of Joe Cronin once again to see if he determined that the U.S. Mint's website and their ordering process is, in fact, a web error or whether he meant error. <laughs> see, there you go, making mistakes. But anyway, no mistaking this. I know for a fact that what we're looking for right here, Mike Diamond had an article in his Collector's Clearinghouse in 2015 about this. And uh, that's the idea that it's called the Blakesley effect. So the Blakesley effect is the answer to your question. You nailed it. Good for you. You're continuing your education. You're learning, reading about all this stuff. And that is right. So th that term is used to describe what is expected to be an inefficient metal flow opposite the clip. So because of how striking happens, the whole equal and opposite reaction, you know, it's all science, but, you know, you're going to see a diminished striking opposite of where that curved clip is or the where the curve is on the, the planchet. So that doesn't always give it away that it's authentic, but many inauthentic, many faked counterfeit errors, pseudo errors, things that people are making to try to pass as real things, uh, they will not exhibit the Blakesley effect. And that's a way to tell. So it's not 100%, not foolproof, but it, it does help it. And I have, for all the reference to the Blakesley effect, I have been unable to figure out who Blakesley is. I don't know who Blakesley, the first name. Yeah. Uh, did you see that referenced in Mike Diamond's story? No, I did not. And I went to, I was curious about that myself. So I went to a couple of different places. I went to the mint related books. I went to uh, my, the dictionary, the, the encyclopedia of terms that I go to and it didn't fall. It fell bit. And then there was another BL term. Blakesley was not in there. So I really haven't been able to come up with that one as of yet. Certainly that uh, leaves the door open for further discovery. And uh, in fact, we welcome anyone who might know the answer to that question 
can contact us at the contact information that we have there. But now it's time because I got one right. And you've always told me that if I ever get one right, that I get the chance to ask you a question. I don't, I don't, I don't so I'm going to take that. advantage of that. Free pass. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, I well, think you invented that, but that's okay. This, I'll hey, roll this with is it. a podcast. Yeah, th- that's it. I mean, we're, we're creating as we go along here. So uh, our topic of today is going to be the uh, wreckage of the SS Central America back in the 1850s. And we'll be speaking with uh, the chief scientist, Bob Evans, one of our Coin World top influencers. That'll be coming up, or most influential. That'll be coming up here very shortly. But I found it interesting in doing the research about that, that uh, the tragedy itself, uh, the, a lot of individuals perished in that, of course, and uh, the human side of things. But the captain had a daughter. And uh, the daughter eventually married a gentleman who became a president of the United States. So now I'm interested if you can tell me, and there is a numismatic connection here, but if you can tell me who the daughter eventually married, then uh, it'll probably be your turn again next week. But that we'll just kind of leave it at that. So I'm going to throw it out there. Who did the captain of the SS Central America's daughter eventually marry? Huh. That is expert level right there, and I'm not sure. So maybe Bob mentions it in our interview. Uh, we'll find out here in just a second. We're not talking sausage here. We are talking about SS Central America. Bob Evans is the chief scientist on the recovery efforts of the famed treasure ship, the Ship of Gold. Thank you so much for being here today. It's my pleasure. And uh, can you get into how you got started a uh, scientist in the middle of Ohio cornfields? How did you get plucked out of that setting and uh, find yourself off the coast of the Carolinas and leading what is, by all accounts and by everyone's estimation, one of the most important treasure hunts, shipwrecks, in North American history. How did that all happen? This was many, several decades ago. So let's take the listeners back to that, if you will. It's a fairly simple story, I guess, but it began with uh, my acquaintance with uh, Tommy Thompson. The founder of the project was my neighbor. So literally this started out sitting on a front porch discussing various things. Tommy Thompson, whom I, I knew at the time as Harvey, was an engineer and he was putting together this project and at some point uh, was actually in I believe October of 1983 he was doing research about the SS Central America and uh, that month he received an important piece of historical information that gave him a third coordinate that seemed to corroborate two others and he was constructing a what he called a data correlation matrix. He often had complicated names for simple concepts. Um, uh, it was a spreadsheet where the rows, such as they were, were three-hour time slots, and the columns were the different accounts. And whenever there was information that was Uh, what he called critical path information, something that had to do with the physics of the final two days of the Central America's voyage, and then for one day following the sinking. Uh, 
This told us about the weather, the waves, the currents, uh, the condition of the ship, uh, things that might in some way modify the celestial coordinates and allow us to, uh, well, pinpoint is, is way too accurate, but at least blanket an area of the ocean that could then be searched with what was at that time emerging technology. Uh, side scanning sonar that could cover a swath that was three miles wide. So important technology, which he was tuned into, was emerging at the same time that historical research was dovetailing with that. I was a geologist with my degree from Ohio State University, but still living in that same neighborhood. We would talk about all sorts of things. The ocean came up quite a bit because, uh, well, his specialty was ocean engineering. And his, he was working on things like ocean mining and where might there be mineral deposits. So it kind of intersected with uh, geological subjects. And he brought up the subject of shipwrecks because shipwrecks were something that we actually knew something about the location of where this resource might be. Whereas the deep ocean at that time was a largely unexplored, uh, we knew more about the surface of the moon than we did about the deep ocean. So he recruited me to take over the historical research, as well as doing some background geological research about those areas of the ocean where, where we thought the Central America might lie. The key point being that the Central America sank in very deep water, and there was no chance of any sort of previous salvage on it, unlike many shallow water shipwrecks where, you know, divers and fishermen with their nets and all sorts of folks like that could have possibly done some salvage that went unrecorded. This thing sank, well, we, we could easily figure that it was over 100 miles at sea and in water that was some, somewhere around a mile or more in depth. And in fact, that's uh, what ended up happening following the sonar search and, and one unsuccessful season looking at the wrong shipwreck. Science is a, an iterative and reiterative process. And sometimes you get on the wrong track and you have to correct. And that is what we did. And so reviewing the sonar records after a year on the wrong shipwreck I proposed this odd-looking anomaly on the sonar records that was identified as a large geological feature. I thought it might actually be a shipwreck. Uh, we used that site as a test site for our 1988 season. And uh, yes, indeed, it turned out to be the SS Central America with a fabulous treasure of gold on board. That is the... Uh, very brief version <laughs> of a very complicated story. But this is how I became involved. It was literally very grassroots conversations on front porches, that sort of thing. That's amazing that, I mean, you know, it just it comes down to just who you know. <laughs> Sometimes, but as well, as, as has often been said, fortune favors the bold. And so, you know, actually doing something about this interesting intersection had a lot to do with it. Honestly, we expected and we in fact projected that first that it would be a five to eight year project. And uh, I'm talking to you today. So. 
Yeah, yeah, and that, that was, was the 1980s. It uh, life gets complicated at times, as do shipwrecks. They always seem to be at the center of litigation, and that certainly was no different for for this wreck. Uh, I mean, you're talking 1988, and there was uh, legal battle. wasn't The first round wasn't concluded until like 1996, and then you know that stuff started entering the marketplace afterward but you guys have gone back more recently how um it makes sense that despite the fact that the wreck of 100 and 150 million dollars of gold at the time uh you can't get everything because of uh, limitations of technology time whatever and so things have changed and made capture and recovery of more treasure possible more recently right well Technology, particularly control technologies with computers and such, obviously have undergone enormous transformation since 1991, which was our last season in the, what I'll call the early expeditions. Sometimes they think of it as SSCA-1 as opposed to SSCA-2. So, um, yeah, the, uh, the legal regime ultimately and the disputes over business and reporting and those sorts of matters, which are fortunately not really a part of my bailiwick or expertise, they ultimately consumed and removed Tommy Thompson from the scene. A receivership took over the project in, uh, let's see, 2013, after I got reinvolved in 2012 and testified in the receivership hearings and such, a receiver was appointed. And under Ohio law, a receiver, a receivership, is allowed to operate the business in question as a business, not just do a simple liquidation if that is what makes the most sense for the profits and the and the uh, the claimants and the investors in that business so uh the receiver hired me as well as a contractor uh odyssey marine to uh basically take their turnkey operation they had a they had the ship they had the rov they had the crew. They it was really a, a magnificent crew that they had assembled for this as well. Well, who wouldn't want to work on the SS Central America? You know, it already had that cachet and that brand and that excitement built into it from the earlier expeditions, and we were now going back after after twenty. I guess it's twenty three years between the time I last saw it in 1991 and the time that I first saw it again on April 15th in, in 2014. The accounting of the treasure, see, we found the com- what was the commercial shipment. There was a shipment of $1.219 million in 1857 dollars uh, going from businesses in San Francisco or in California in general, to the East Coast, to New York and other East Coast uh, businesses to settle accounts, uh, purchase whatever what, whatever transactions were going on between 
this huge burgeoning gold rush economy in California and the rest of the country, and in fact, the rest of the world. Well, that $1.219 million after our uh, four seasons on the site, 88 through 91, we didn't have that much. So we knew that there still was a, a lingering amount of commercial shipment gold, as well as the fact that there, this was a very wealthy ship. There were very wealthy passengers. There was very likely to be other treasure that the passengers themselves were conveying and, in fact, talked about in the historical record. The long story short here and the long justification short here was that there was plenty of reason to go back. And so go back we did in 2014. I've heard that the original expedition only got about 5% of the um, ship. Now, how much, maybe that's the ship, not the treasure, but there's definitely more meat on the bone, it sounds like. That's exactly right what you just said. We explored, we thoroughly explored about 5% of the main shipwreck and did uh, video and photographic Uh, surveys and such of the rest of the site, including the extensive debris field that's around it. But again, going back to technology, uh, NEMO, which was the name of our robot back in 1988 through 91, well, compared to a modern machine, it was rather limited in its, well, the versatility was good, but the maneuverability was not outstanding, let's put it that way, by modern standards. It's hard to argue with the fact that we did pick up over two tons of gold with it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it was amazing. Sounds like it worked to me. <laughs> it was an amazing tech- technical achievement considering that we were using what was basically the equivalent of about five IBM XT computers to run this whole thing. You have more computing power in your cell phone. Things have changed a lot in the ensuing decades. But we did not do extensive physical exploration of the rest of the shipwreck. We had the the good fortune of finding the commercial shipment using our photographic surveys. We literally spotted the gold or parts of it exposed on the surface. An amazing sight. Many people have seen the pictures. But it took us a lot of time to work on that site. And so that's most of what we did for those four seasons at sea was working on this site where there's all this gold, not going off onto, you know, I wonder about that area to the, to the uh, port side of the bow up there. Maybe we ought to check that out sometime. Yeah, that'd be a good idea, but we've got gold to pick up. Um, so our focus in those early expeditions was, in a recovery sense, uh, almost completely limited to uh, the commercial shipment area. In 2014, in a matter of a couple of weeks after we arrived on site, we had done a full digitized photo mosaic, digitally interleaved with navigation information and everything else. The modern technology is wonderful. I learned more about the site as a whole in those first couple of weeks at sea than I learned in four years of working on it in the earlier expeditions, simply because 
you could see the big picture. Working on a shipwreck at 2,200 meters deep, this is uh, 7,200 feet deep, roughly, is like, I tell people, it's like exploring a junkyard in a snowstorm, a snow-covered junkyard at night in the wintertime with a flashlight. <laughs> it's hard to get the big picture. And those modern surveying and photographic and digitizing and, and knitting all the pictures together and all of that to produce a photo mosaic, a, a wonderful map that we could rely on for that entire site was, uh, it was like a miracle. It, it, all of a sudden you could actually see how things had fallen, how things had had scattered during the sinking, and then how things had degraded after the sinking, and, and what the situation was down there now. Uh, great technology. Were you able to determine in the difference, in the time difference, plus with the newer um, material that you had to work with, how much the site had changed because of time? You know, there's a little bit of change. Uh, the rust has grown. Some areas that that had been, um, well, the the site, first of all, let me just back up a second. The site is essentially a very gently sloping, featureless plain until you get down to the real close detail, and then you see it's actually not featureless, but it's a big, muddy field for about 150 miles. And of course, there's a there's a benthic uh, fauna that live on that seafloor, and they produce certain features, but not not anything of great consequence. When a shipwreck falls down there, it actually acts a little like a snow fence in the wintertime, um, in that things tend to sediment tends to drift along the bottom more than it tends to fall in that area. The deposition rate is really only along the lines of about a centimeter every thousand years. And yet there is sediment constantly shifting along the bottom until it finally settles and becomes a part of the seafloor for good. And so that drifting sediment had a tendency to form dunes and drifts over the top of the shipwreck as the shipwreck was degrading we see areas where the sediment is piled up maybe, uh, oh, five or six feet deep, a couple of meters. And you also see areas where you can see on the seabed, you can see ripple marks indicating that they're actually an erosional surface. So those areas are swept clean. Fortunately for us, one part of the shipwreck that had the treasure in it, a portion of that had been swept clean there were animals living all over it, corals and, and crinoids and, and crabs and all sorts of things were sponges, were attached to it, crawling around on it, living on it. It was a, a truly a fascinating sight because the waters are actually well oxygenated down there. It's not like it's, a, it's not swampy and, and anaerobic. Uh, there's a lot of oxygen that it sweeps uh, the western boundary undercurrent is what they generally call the the currents at depth in that area. It runs the opposite direction from the Gulf Stream. It's part of that conveyor belt. The Central America actually sank in the Gulf Stream. 
or in at a spot where the Gulf Stream is over it less than 5% of the time, but it, it was over it when the ship sank because there were men who were rescued 300 miles north uh, nine days later. That's quite a ride. I can't imagine the first time you find the wreck and you see gold on the seafloor. You just have to be kid in a candy store, just beside yourself giddy. You remember the day that you got back there on the second expedition. Do you have marked in your brain that moment when you were there for the first time and you finally have that eureka moment? What was that like? It's a funny thing because I'm the scientist. And it was what we were looking for. (laughs) We'd made a very deliberate effort to find this shipwreck and to find the gold. Now, I'm not saying that I wasn't excited, but I'll say that the other people in the room who had not studied it quite so heavily and who had followed my uh, sort of mathematical directions for where we ought to be and where we ought to look and and that kind of thing in, in initially finding the ship, they were greatly excited because one of the first things we came across was the side wheel which we had not seen on that wrong site that we had worked the year before. And so now we got it going. We got the side wheel of, you know, the one nautical architectural feature that could identify this uh, ship and say, hey, yeah, it's me. You found me. I'm the SS Central America. It was confirmed a few days later by the recovery of the bell which said was inscribed with Morgan Ironworks, New York, 1853. 1853 was the date of the maiden voyage of the SS Central America under, at that time, the name, the uh, George Law. Law. Yeah. So uh, that pegged it. There were really only three sidewheel steamers that sank in that entire area of the ocean uh, at depth. Over time, the Daniel Webster, the Evening Star, and the SS Central America, and and both the Daniel Webster and the Evening Star probably sank a little bit closer to shore than what this was, and they definitely did not have their maiden voyage in 1853 and had engines that were built by the Morgan Ironworks, so that's what nailed it. And then a few days after that, our photographs actually first picked up the gold my first sight of the gold was actually looking through a loop in a dark room on a light table, looking at our, uh, we used to shoot ectochrome for heaven's sake. You know, everybody, <laughs> everybody, everything is so digital nowadays. We forget the fact that, you know, you, you had to shoot, our cameras had two 300 exposure cassettes of ectochrome that were loaded into them. So we could get a maximum of 600 pictures per dive. And sometimes that would be a reason to end a dive as we couldn't do any more photography. But that's how we were getting our really high resolution stuff at that time was was through the photographs. And the guy developing them told me that uh, I should go in there and have a look at what he's got on the light table and uh, be sure to bring a change of underwear. Hmm. Um, it was pretty exciting, uh, truly. Uh, the Garden of Gold, we called the initial deposit, partly because in a way it looked like a garden with all of that life festooned all over it with the corals and the sponges and the other things 
living in on and around it. It was a very living kind of scene, but you realize that these animals are living on top of piles of coins and blocks of gold. And, and it was, uh, it was absolutely fascinating. Well, you homewrecker, you taking away their, you know, home like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, there's those kinds of things, actually. But um, you you think about it, you know, how long has this been going on here? But but the uh, the biology on the site was a fascinating part because you see what you learn is that these shipwrecks are really like island communities in that flat, featureless plain. All of a sudden, you have introduced a third dimension. We have height. And so animals can attach to something like uh, the side wheels and take advantage of the fact that you've got the greater current. A lot of these animals are filter feeders, and it's a fascinating place. We ended up finding about a dozen new species of life previously unknown to science uh, working on the site, too. Wow. Fantastic biological discovery as well. Well, you know, what happens when you take a huge piece of wood and you sink it out in that part of the ocean? Well, now we know. The wood forms a foundation for the, as it starts to decay and the bacteria work up and it begins this huge food web right on up the site until you have, you know, you have octopuses and you have sharks and you have all sorts of the climax predators all the way from the the simplest of, of biology to the most complex. Are any of these newly discovered species named after you? Did you get something named after you? That would have been cool. No, I, <laughs> Darn. I, I, I haven't. The, uh, our, our science officer, um, uh, Professor Eddie Herdendorf, who actually just recently underwent a heart procedure, and I'm happy to know that he's, he's at home recovering. I believe one of the species was partially named for him. I think there was one that was called Hehebe, and the H-E in the name had stood stood for Herdendorf. Okay, but okay. but anyway, there there was there was new stuff. Very uh, cool, and new stuff is cool. As, Absolutely, as with with the treasure, there was new stuff. Let's talk about the treasure a little bit because uh, we've been stuck in the science, which is cool, yeah. but, um, you not know, what, it's not what we're about here. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we have to know where, you know, how it all got there and all that, but the context is important. Yeah. Your work wasn't just out in the ocean. Once you got back on land, is it fair to say you probably had more work waiting for you once you got back on land than the work that you did, uh, in the sea? I have personally handled each and every piece of treasure from the SS Central America. So I was responsible for the curating. I'm uh, responsible for, I don't know, I'm the, I'm the point man on the science and on the numismatics, both. I've always been a field scientist, so this kind of makes sense for me. But I work in the laboratory, I work in the field, and I work in the library. That's what I tell people. I can do all three. Yeah, so I've handled it all. I got to see it all first. I got to make the first, you know, there's a real thrill, among other things, in being the first one to handle this stuff since 1857. It's an interesting connection you get with your subjects when you're, you know, you think about what does the gold mean, not just what is it and what is it worth, 
but what does it mean? So talk about what it means because, uh, you know, I just wrote uh, a story about world gold coins that are coming up for sale in mid-June from Goldberg Coin and Collectibles. And there's a lot of world gold uh, that was on the wreck. You know, we think of the Central America for its U.S. connection, but there's a lot of world gold on the wreck, and that helps provide a an understanding of the economics of the time and uh, a, a better just sense of how the world was operating. The world gold is such a fascinating little suite of coinage as part of the treasure. It comes from the passenger component of this thing. There were all these people on board who had their personal wealth. We excavated something around 30, what we called at the time coin piles, because there was, it was a good way of describing what we saw in certain instances and what we were excavating in others, uh, where you have uh, what must have originally started out as a piece of of luggage, carpet bag or a, or simply a, a cotton sack, anything like that. The last things that these people had with them as they were on the deck of the ship, as it was about to sink, as it was about to succumb from this hurricane, they had their gold with them and they had their photographs. And so we tended to find a lot of the gold and a lot of the photographs together. That's one of those things when you realize when you're looking at it, you get that connection with this moment on September 12th, 1857, which that's how that gets there, is that people had brought that stuff up to the upper deck. And then as the ship sank and the people were swept into the ocean, that heavy luggage, because gold is very heavy, you know, it plummeted to the deep with the, with the ship. And it ended up in this debris field. Well, some of it ended up in the debris field anyway, that surrounds the ship. And so you'll be going along and then you find this area that's maybe two or three square feet that has got all sorts of coins and all sorts of glass plates from the photographs. It's just a little treasure into itself. Yeah. I tell people that as a Central America site, unlike Unlike some, some shipwreck treasures, most, I, I dare say. I'm not that familiar with all of them, but a lot of them involve mostly one large major shipment that is involved. This government is paying that government, or this large business is paying this, or this mining area is shipping this to the home country, or, or something of that nature. And so it, it tends to be one block sort of shipment. In this case, we have dozens of individual business shippers in the commercial shipment and hundreds of passengers. Yeah, so You get to see the whole cross-section of economic practice, um, all the way from the, from the money of banking and big business, which tended to be ingots, uh, gold ingots, assay ingots from five different assayers, and double eagles, $20 gold coins, because the idea in the commercial shipment was to send as much money and as few pieces as possible. Well, the passenger gold is very different because this was their spending money. This is what they would use to purchase lodging for the night or, or uh, buy a week's worth of groceries or, you know, what have you. What, 
a normal human being would need and would require. Uh, that street money was about. And so everything from, you know, quarter dollar California fractional coins up to double eagles would be in that. And gold dust, that would be in that. It's uh, gold in every imaginable form was on the SS Central America. You've hit upon something that I think is important to zero in on, the very human cost of this uh, and and the connection, because every coin almost represents an individual in a sense. It's certainly, you know, uh, not that, you know, every individual had one of these coins, but, you know, somebody may have had a dozen, but there were 425 passengers that perished in this wreck. You know, so for as much excitement as there might have been or you might have experienced when you, you find the wreck and, and you find the gold, I wonder what kind of solemnity there was as this is a, a treasure site, but it's a graveyard in a sense. How did you process that feeling while at the same time recognizing the commercial nature of, of the scientific exploration? Well, to me, the shipwreck site is in fact not exactly a graveyard. It's an accident site. It's a place where this horrific mishap occurred. And you honor the lost by shedding light upon what the objects can tell you about that experience. And you honor the saved as well. There were 153 saved and 425 lost their lives. A huge disaster and yet an amazing site and an amazing economic opportunity as well because it sits out there completely anonymously for, for I guess it was 130 four years, no, 131 years between the time it sank and between the time we first found it. You know, these were the people's coins. You're right. You do think about that. Well, in 2014, for instance, on on September 12th, I held a little ceremony and rang the ship's bell for a minute at seven o'clock in the evening, which was the hour when it sank. We gathered around, I read parts of the story and some appropriate uh, Bible verse and, and such. And we, you know, we pay tribute to those people and their adventure through our own adventure and our own study of the site. We often cite coins as a way to mark, you know, a, a time in history. And so uh, you kind of wonder who held this coin before, or who was involved with uh, this particular coin. Were you surprised at the amount of the diversity of the different nations that were represented by the world coins that were found in this uh, particular expedition? In the early expeditions, we found uh, three uh, world gold coins. There was a a $10 from Hanover in Germany. There was a 20 franc from France, and there was one sovereign. And that was it. Now, those pieces may well have represented intermingled uh, passenger gold that had fallen as the shipwreck collapsed into the same area that where the commercial shipment was. But there wasn't a whole lot of diversity there. But very quickly, literally, coin pile number two, which was named coin pile number two, simply because that was the second one we worked on, second one we photographed and imaged and 
and all of that, it had a wonderful suite of world coin. You know, I mean, it, it had it had sovereigns, it had it had French coins, it had Dutch coins. It was great, and you got to see. Oh my heavens! Look, uh, in 1857 in February, there was a Mint Act which removed the legal tender status for what were considered foreign coins. Up until that point in the United States, the Spanish dollar was one of the standards, one of the legal legal tender standards for particularly, you know, quarters, uh, two bits. That all came about from being the two reals. And those circulated wi- widely in, in the early United States. Well, the gold rush probably precipitated the Mint Act of 1857 because now we had enough of our own uh, homegrown, home-minted coinage that we could cast off these foreign coins. But that lingered in California. If it was gold and it had a value on it, it was possible to, to do trade in it. Pursuant to that, Jacob Eckfeld and William Dubois, who were the assayers and melters at the Mint in Philadelphia, at the U.S. Mint, had published a, a little booklet in 1851 giving the actual dollar value for all of these different types of foreign coin. And so we could be, you know, you could be confident that, okay, I've got a sovereign here. It's not very worn. Oh, gee, well, that's $4.85. And that book was wildly popular in California. I mean, it, it helped both the businessmen and the people who, you know, might wonder, well, should I take that? It's the size of a $5 piece, but what's it really worth? Well, here it was from the U.S. government. You got it all figured out. You know, a sovereign is actually calculated to the mill. It's $4.84 and a half cents. And 20 francs was, was uh, $3.85. So the people in California could consult this book, which nearly every business had, or every business was also toting scales so that they could weigh gold. But here was the purity of that gold and the dollar value of those different coins listed in a U.S. government publication. And so it was delightful to find all of this world gold on the SS Central America, but maybe not all that surprising. Yeah, and uh, what excites me is, uh, you know, I saw the auction stuff preview for the auction was, you know, there are a lot of these coins that they were just the the common trade coins. So, you know, right now, I mean, I certainly don't expect them only to sell for precious metal value, but the estimates uh, seem to be pretty low as far as well, you know, it has a 10th ounce of gold that's going to be, you know, that's at current gold rate, it's $200, so it's a $200 to $300 coin. It's it's fascinating to me that the auction offers the chance to, quote-unquote, affordably. I mean, I know some folks can't afford a $300 coin, but, you know, many folks can, and certainly, you know, if they know ahead of time and have, have planning, can go, you know what, I really would like a piece of this Central America gold and the world coins offer something affordable, and I can go get a, a sovereign quarter of an ounce of, of gold uh, and get it for seven hundred, eight hundred dollars. And it's got this fascinating story with it, you know. So yeah. who knows? You know, I mean, those those 
common ordinary trade coins are not so common if they come from the SS Central America because they're they're a part of the of the California gold rush story. They're a part of the shipwreck story. They're a part of the recovery story. They're a part of all of these different one of the things that fascinate people about owning SS Central America coins is that you do get to buy into that story and you have something tangible that's connected to it. And you got to help make the coins sellable in the sense that uh, many of these needed curation. They needed uh, processing to remove encrustations. But from what I understand, you developed or at least were able to tap into a system that did not harm this coin surface you know that's that's a big thing cleaning coins of you know especially among the the newer collectors you you know we tell everybody don't clean coins except when you do and that confuses people so how how did you how did you know when is it possible and how do you make sure that uh you don't damage the the coin and you're only removing crud that shouldn't be there as opposed to the actual surface my science is ge- is geology to begin with. That's that's I, I still lead with geologists because it happens to be what my college degree is. And iron is the principal contributing mineral to all of the encrustations on the SS Central America. There were over 700 tons of iron were involved in the construction of the steam engines and boilers and the fittings and and all of these things that were part of the of the SS Central America. And as the shipwreck degraded, there is both a chemical process and there are also biological processes. Some of those bacteria that attack the wood and degrade the ship also attack the iron and use the iron in their metabolic processes to the point where there was a thin coating and sometimes a much thicker coating of rust would be the common form, although it comes in many different flavors. What does that taste like? Iron oxide. <laughs> flavors of rust. Sorry. Well, you know, uh, let's say very a lot of different formulas are involved. You know, it's, it's hydrous iron oxides. And there's all sorts of things that can happen with hydrous iron oxides. Uh, ways that they can can combine. But we see these amazing formations that almost look like icicles that are drooping and draping off of all of the exposed iron. And it just flows along the bottom. There was There's iron stains on the coal, there's iron stains on the ceramics, and in fact, there's iron deposits on the gold. Fortunately, this has nothing to do with the corrosion of the gold and everything to do with the fact that things are depositing on the surface of the gold, not within the, not affecting the surface of the gold. And so the whole point was simply to address the iron so that it would physically uh, spall off the surface of the gold. When it comes loose from the gold, what you have underneath is whatever was originally there. If it was a fantastic mint state surface, that's what you get. And that's why we see things that are, are in mint state condition. Although in on other shipwrecks, they've suffered from some seawater effects. That didn't happen here for a couple different reasons. One of them was that iron coating that covered everything and protected it. A second one was the fact that 
the mud in the area is what we call a calcareous ooze. It's easy for you to say. Yeah, it is easy for me to say. But it was slightly alkaline. And when you have acidic conditions, as some shipwrecks do, uh, because they don't have this limestone ooze all around them, you can have actual physical effect on gold. Because chlorine and gold are one of, well, chlorine is one of the things that gold will combine with, or if you will, corrode with under acidic conditions. Well, we don't have those here. We have alkaline conditions. So it's a tricky subject, but fortunately for us, we're able to find coins that look just the same way that they did when they when they sank in 1857. It's fantastic. Now, the question is, I mean, there was obviously 23 years between the end of um, what you call SSCA1 versus SSCA2. Anything left to go back and look for? And will it take 23 years to go back again? <laughs> I have no idea how long it will take to go back again. At this point, the question is about costs and return. At the end of 2014, with the technology we had available in 2014, we had recovered everything we could see or suggested that we should probe there and dig there. So, you know, if we found a coin, we excavated around, we recovered that coin, obviously, but we also would excavate around that coin until we were had explored the full extent of that particular coin deposit. A shipwreck is a very complicated place. It is never going to be fully recovered. It is a difficult place to get to. It is a difficult place to, uh, difficult can be read as both physically difficult and economically difficult because it's not cheap to take a ship out with 50 men on it and operate heavy equipment a mile and a half down for a period of however long. And so the returns have to justify the, uh, the, the costs involved. I don't know. That's a business part. I can tell you as a scientist that there is still gold on the site. There must be. We've recovered a fraction. I don't know what the fraction is, but only a portion, I guess, is a good way to say it. I'm going to pack my uh, swim trunks and uh, scuba gear and (laughs) start head to the coast. (laughs) No, (laughs) uh, this is a bit too deep for that. Uh, Yeah, I know. It it fascinates people to know that, yes, I swim, but I do not dive. I'm I'm not a scuba diver. I sit in in an air-conditioned control room on a ship and watch guys as they operate remotely operated vehicles and do the do the work that I ask them to. Well, while Jeff is packing up his scuba gear, Bob, I want to thank you for the time that you've <laughs> taken with us right here. And uh, I think I'm going to direct him to Gilligan's Island to see what he can do over there because that's a more recent uh, shipwreck and uh, we can go from there. But Bob, it's been very enlightening. Uh, definitely do appreciate it. We could probably go on for another hour or so. But uh, I'm going to turn you back on to your day here. I appreciate the time that you've spent. Again, belated congratulations on being selected as one of the most influential in CoinWorld's recent uh, publication. And we thank you once again for your uh, time and your uh, at the, what you've done and being a part of our podcast today. Well, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure.
And and I would echo those things, and I would just say, Gilligan's Island, uh, the debate was always Ginger or Marianne, and my answer is yes. So <laughs> uh, thanks again, and, and congrats, and we look forward to uh, hearing more of this story as any more uh, becomes available, and uh, we'll certainly be watching the auction to see how we'll things go. We'll definitely be watching this sale. It is an absolutely fascinating uh, group of coins. Well, that was our interview with Bob Evans, chief scientist of the SS Central America. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, He certainly is uh, an amazing individual with uh, what a neat story, uh, being able to be involved in such a landmark treasure and part of American history. It, It transcends numismatics. It really is American history because, you know, the the wreck was one of the significant factors in the panic of 1857. And, you know, that it's just, everything's interconnected. The butterfly effect and all that butterfly halfway around the world. How does it affect here? So, you know, the, that shipwreck was the effect, you know, really is felt today and it's been felt throughout almost 160 years since then. So we thank you again for giving that a listen. And we certainly uh, will be keeping an eye on the upcoming auction of some of those world coins that were discovered there. There's some very interesting uh, specimens which you've covered extensively in our monthly issue of Coin World here. So uh, that auction coming up in just a couple of weeks. So we've got another great show planned for you next time through. So we hope that you will join us in the future. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to Amos Advantage. Make sure you reach out to us with your suggestions, comments, and where Larry made a mistake other than... uh, you know, the usual. So until next time, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the coin world podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Would you like to sponsor the coin world podcast? If so, contact your coin world sales representative or email Brian Hertel at B H E R T E L at amosmedia.com. The email is in the show notes as well. Affordable rates and multi-episode discounts are available. Contact us today to sponsor the coin world podcast.